This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So my topic for this evening um, is the relationship between science and religion, or between science and faith, depending on how you want to think about it. It's a topic that sometimes seems familiar enough, but I think that kind of familiarity can be deceptive. And what I mean is that I think just everybody has heard about, let's say, a conflict between science and faith, a conflict between science and religion, and probably can rattle off a few things that sound like illustrative examples. Galileo is usually up at the top of the list, although I understand now Bruno has reached uh, that level with him. Um, but usually there's a lot less appreciation of the origins or, of the notion or the validity of the historical claims upon which this idea of conflict is based. So what I want to do this evening is first I'm going to try and outline where and why the idea of a constant conflict between science and religion originated and describe who continues to support it and why, because I think the why is very important here as well, not necessarily the surface meaning. Uh, I'm then going to critique this misperception, first with some historical examples, and then I think what's more important, we can all, well, what I think is more important is to cite certain features of religion, of Catholic Christianity in particular, that formed basic foundations for the development of modern scientific culture and the contributions it continues to make. So um, it still frequently comes as a surprise that there are, I'm going to say this very carefully, no serious historians of science who accept the notion of a long-standing or inherent conflict or warfare between science and religion. None. Um, in contrast to what I would call the silly rantings of the popular press uh, that loves to report uh, on the problems between the two equally obnoxious flavors of fundamentalist, the religious and the scientistic, um, the historical interaction between science and religion has been complex and varied and often cooperative. So, but despite the unanimous rejection of the conflict model by historians of science, this conflict model remains not only widespread, but naturalized as a fact in popular culture. So what I compare it to is a pernicious biological species that's gotten a foothold in a new environment. It's proven difficult to eradicate despite the continued efforts of the scholars who are best qualified for the task. So let's explore the origins of the conflict model and the causes for its continuing survival despite overwhelming evidence. So historians identify two late 19th century books as the conflict thesis's chief vectors. And I use the word vector there with the um, contagion uh, metaphor in mind. Uh, John William Draper's A History of Conflict Between Religion and Science, published in 1874, and Andrew Dixon White's A History of the Warfare of Science and, with Theology in Christendom, 1896. So let's introduce the characters here. The first of them, John William Draper, was born in England. He was the son of a Methodist minister. He immigrated to the United States where he became a professor of chemistry and physiology and later an amateur, I emphasize the word amateur there, historian, and first president, I'm ashamed to say, of the American Chemical Society. As a chemist, I'm ashamed to say that. Um, in the 1860s, Draper published several historical works, both of which claimed that 
uh, what he called universal law of development powered by physiology and climate determine absolutely the physical and intellectual development of human individuals, the historical development of human societies, and that of human civilization as a whole. What he did was to amalgamate this sort of weird mixture of mid-19th century ideas about race, physiology, progress, and the effects of climate to produce a reductionist interpretation of history in what, frankly, I would call a rather cartoonish, often self-contradictory manner, illustrated with historical information, most of which was unreliable even at the time. Well, Draper was commissioned to write this book, The History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science, as part of the International Scientific Series, a project that was devoted to science popularization. It became a bestseller. It went through multiple printings, numerous editions, numerous translations, and it remains easily available today. The book is, in fact, a valuable historical artifact of its time and place, but it's not a reliable source about history. Draper's universal law of development guides the book, but here it is combined with a specifically anti-Catholic hysteria. I'll read you a quotation from it. Roman Catholicism and science are recognized by their respective adherents as being absolutely incompatible. They cannot exist together. Mankind must make its choice. It cannot have both. An interesting statement when you think of the number of Catholic scientists that there were in 1874, but Draper never lets reality get in the way of things. At the same time, he calls Protestantism the twin sister of science and asserts, get this, that if there have ever been any problems between Protestantism and science, that is due only to, quote, incomplete emancipation from Catholicism. Draper confects grotesquely melodramatic scenes calculated to provoke outrage and passes them off as accurate portrayals of historical events. You know, every year when I teach my science and religion class, I want to get the students to read some part out of this book, but it's really difficult to find something that just wouldn't make them laugh because it's so absurd. Now, one of my favorite examples is he likes universal laws who, that govern everything. And one of his universal laws is that under normal circumstances, the human population should double every 25 years. Okay. So he says, well, let's look at England. From 1066 until the start of the Reformation, the population of England barely changed. Therefore, it's the Pope's fault. Now, the reasons he gives for this, I, I, I mean, I can't even quite figure them out. It's like there were too many priests and people didn't get married fast enough, which is why you know he's a Victorian, because he thinks you have to be married to have children. But it's probably the only time in history that anyone has ever blamed the Catholic Church for reducing the birth rate. <laughs> if you actually do the calculation, it turns out that if his law was true, the population of England right now would be three trillion. Now, compare that to Protestant America, where in the last 25 years before 1875, the population doubled. He seems totally oblivious to the fact that the only reason the population of the United States doubled then was due to Irish Catholic immigrants. It's like, that's the kind of thing we're dealing with with this book. It's absolutely unbelievable. 
Well, his hatred of Catholicism is part and parcel of widespread late 19th century American anti-Catholicism and xenophobia, uh, particularly against, as I say, newly arriving immigrants. Um, Draper had, of course, we have no, no knowledge of that in our modern enlightened era. Um, Draper had previously declaimed against what he called the insidious agency of immigration and of a hybrid population. And conflict would not have found so broad a readership had it not been for the contemporaneous American panic over Catholic immigration. What readers of Draper's conflict didn't, and still usually don't know, is that unique personal circumstances played a key role. Draper's father, I mentioned, was a Methodist minister. He had actually converted to Methodism, and that conversion provoked his ostracism from the rest of the Draper family, which was, as you might guess, Catholic. And just before Draper wrote the conflict, his sister Elizabeth, who had been living in his house with him and his wife, converted to Catholicism, and he threw her out of the house. So vehement is Draper's hatred of Catholicism that he actually refers to the rise of Islam as, quote, the Southern Reformation, and contrasts Islam as ever beneficial to science against a supposedly ever malevolent Catholicism. Okay. Well, also there were conciliar and papal declarations in 1864 and 1870 that responded to contemporaneous philosophical and political ideas that helped drive Draper over the edge. Um, Pius IX's Syllabus of Errors critiqued the idea that scientific and rational inquiry can reveal everything there is to know and the, de and the denial of God's action in the world. And in 1870, Vatican I spoke out against materialism, reasserted the role of faith in human understanding, defended Christian education and religious rules, role in guiding society. Such statements affected Draper viscerally because they opposed this deterministic universal law of development. For him, human, human efforts count for nothing. We are all manipulated by climate and um, geography. And so in, in, in his idea, you know, we can't actually have a, I don't think he had an idea of free will. I mean, he has such crazy ideas. He writes one of the first uh, histories of the Civil War within months after uh, the ceasefire was signed in which he says, well, the Civil War was unavoidable because North and South have different climates, and so people differentiated into two different peoples, which naturally came into conflict. So the way to solve this is we need to build more North-South railroads so that people will travel between the two and will keep mixing up, and then there won't be another Civil War. I'm really not making this up. All right. Uh, he also didn't like the way that the Vatican Council's uh, declarations placed limits on scientists' authority, like himself, to speak definitively on all matters whatsoever. Well, the second inventor of the myth, Andrew Dixon White, was the founding president of Cornell University. He began speaking publicly, publicly about the issue in 1869, and his efforts culminated in a massive two-volume History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. Now, White's work proved considerably less popular than Draper's. It does not show Draper's rabid anti-Catholicism. It was more extensively footnoted, which gave it a patina of scholarly authority. White's tone is a bit more placid, although frequently melodramatic. Yet the book 
is no more reliable as a historical source than Draper's. And it, too, originates in a very, very personal context rather than in historical reality. White's campaign is a response to criticism he received when he was a senator in the New York legislature. While there, he reappropriated federal land-grant funds away from existing denominational colleges in order to found a new college, Cornell, of which he then resigned as senator to become its president. His companion and fellow senator in this political game, Ezra Cornell, then had the college named after him and obtained exclusive control over all the federal money. Hence, it's not surprising that the colleges that lost out on this money cried foul. It looked like, I mean, really bad political mismanagement and backroom dealing, which part of it, in fact, was. Um, White, however, chose to cast their criticism as an instance of religion against science, that is, denominational colleges, and remember, almost all the colleges in the United States were denominational at the time, right, against a college that was not founded by a religious body, Cornell, um, rather than what it really was, reasonable criticism of political maneuvering that had, let's say, more than a whiff of impropriety. Well, after I've told you this, you may well be wondering, have you ever, has anybody read either one of these books? No, okay. I think very few people actually have. You may wonder what impact bad books over a century old could have today. Well, like in this room, you are not atypical. Very, very few people have read them today. I confess I have read them. Some days I regret it, but I have read them. Um, few have even heard of their authors. Nevertheless, the historical errors that they invented or popularized have become facts in contemporary culture. So how many of you were taught at some point that before Columbus, people thought the world was flat? Comes from here. How many were taught that the Catholic Church forbade human dissection? Comes from here. And I can just go right through the list that huge numbers of things that are taught in virtually every public school that are completely false were popularized by these books. And even if you don't read the books, the, the errors that they promulgated have gotten into the culture so deeply ingrained that it's almost impossible to get them out. So in fact, uh, both Draper and White confect this story, I have to tell you this because it's just so funny, that of Columbus before the theologians at Salamanca, and the theologians are supposedly quoting the Bible at him that the world is flat. It's like, where'd you get that from? Um, just so that you know, the sphericity of the earth has been well known since the time of Aristotle in the fourth century BC, end of discussion. So he has this crazy story about the two, uh, about Columbus being this brave individual asserting the rotundity of the earth, whereas the ignorant theologians are talking about its flatness. And it's like, if you actually look, there are actually records of this. It was Columbus um, who was actually quoting the Bible. And the reason that the theologians thought it was wrong was that Columbus's estimate of the circumference of the earth was wrong by a third. He picked the wrong ancient author. I mean, they wrote the, the size of the earth was pretty well known in antiquity, by the, certainly by the time of Ptolemy. Um, uh, but uh, Columbus picked this 
bad number, which was wrong by about the width of the Pacific Ocean. So no wonder he thought he landed in Japan. All right. Um, oh, by the way, no, this is, this is the part that, I, that I, I often forget to tell. So remember I said that Draper is Draper's not good with footnotes. White's good with footnotes. So he actually footnotes the story. And so you look at the footnote, and it says, um, I, it says, Irving, Life of Columbus. You might think, Irving, Life of Columbus, who is this? Well, you do a little search. It's Washington Irving, you know, of Headless Horseman fame and the legend of Sleepy Hollow, who wrote a romantic story about Columbus in the 1830s, and they're taking it as a historical narrative. It's like, where'd you guys come from? And White, by the way, was the president of the American Historical Association. Oops. All right. So, um, now, the false narratives of Draper and White were uncritically and self-servingly perpetuated by a number of 20th century authors. First, by a group that I call the techno-utopianists. These are people who, in the aftermath of World War I, believed that peace was to be gained by having a future world governed by technology and ruled by scientists. Uh, one of the most prolific of these was the science fiction writer H.G. Wells. His 1918 Outline of History, which is possibly the most widely read history book of all time, borrowed directly from Draper and White and openly called for the abolition of religion. Through the 1930s and 1940s, a group of English scientists, especially those in the life sciences, and all of whom were also communist supporters of the Soviet Union, likewise perpetuated the myth. Accordingly, they strove to redefine life in pure, purely materialist forms, and it's arguably true that the most rabid of the modern-day atheistic proponents of scientism and the so-called new atheists draw their own intellectual if you want to call it that, pedigree from these mid-century characters. I start, started thinking to, me, to myself, why are so many of the biggest loudmouths among the so-called new atheists English? And so this is, a, this is a historian's question. If you go back through what they must have been formed as, as children, um, there were BBC programs and so forth that were put together by these people I'm talking about um, who were uh, Marxist supporters of the Soviet Union materialists who were preaching a sort of gospel of materialism um, in England. And I, I, I think, I, I mean, I can't say this with absolute definitive certainty, but it makes sense as a historical argument. Well, citing the factual errors of all these authors, it would take me all night. So I'm only going to mention their fundamental methodological error. That's the one error that makes the whole thing come down like a house of cards. Namely, that they assume the existence of two distinct groups, scientists and religionists. And those two groups simply did not exist as such before the late 19th century. One could say before the early 20th century even. Virtually every contributor to scientific knowledge in Europe before the 19th century was also a believing Christian, many very deeply religious, many of them clergy. And historical examples are easy to enumerate to the point of exhaustion. And I won't exhaust you, I'll just give you some of the top 10 maybe. 
Robert Boyle, you've heard of his gas law, right? Um, the champion of chemistry, discoverer of the fundamental gas law that bears his name, was called in his eulogy a lay bishop, and his books divide evenly between scientific and theological topics. Isaac Newton devoted at least as much time to theology and biblical studies as he did to mathematics or physics. And it's trivially easy to cite a long list of scientific works and achievements from the Middle Ages to the present carried out by ordained priests. St. Albert the Great's work on miner mineralogy and embryology, Pierre Gassendi's revival of atomism, my favorite, the Jesuit Athanasius Kircher's descent into the crater of an erupting Vesuvius to make observations. I'm sure it didn't happen this way, but whenever I think about it, I see him on the end of ropes in a cassock and a beretta going down into the crater of a volcano, um, being lowered down in. Uh, the blessed Neil Stano's observations of fossils and strata that set the foundations of modern geology, John Ray's botanical classification system, and in the 20th century, Georges Lemaitre, the Belgian Catholic priest who held degrees in the sciences from Cambridge, Harvard, and MIT, who developed Big Bang cosmology. The topics of magnetism, optics, and seismology were, at various times, virtually monopolies of the Jesuits. To say a few words about perhaps the most famous case regarding science and religion, the supporters and detractors of Galileo were pretty evenly divided among ecclesiastics and laymen, and both criticism and support of his system of the Earth's motions came from both theological and scientific knowledge. While some churchmen and secular professors criticized him, others praised him. The Jesuits at the Collegio Romano in Rome gave him a celebratory feast to mark his telescopic discoveries. And Galileo liked to quote his friend, Cardinal Cesare Baronio, who quipped, quote, the intention of the Holy Spirit is to tell us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Very recently, it has been shown that the first, the very first people in European universities to teach Galileo's new physics of motion were in fact Italian Jesuits. So into which of Draper and White's presumed warring camps should all these figures be assigned? Are they religionists? Are they scientists? Well, the categories just don't make any historical sense. They're an artifact of the late 19th and early 20th century, and they just cannot be read backwards uh, into earlier time. So why then does the myth continue to remain so strong today despite historical facts to the contrary, and people like me that go jetting around the country to talk about it. Well, in large part because it is a myth. And I mean that in the positive sense of the word myth. Despite their explicit use of military metaphors, supporters of the view consciously or unconsciously borrow the imagery that characterizes the history of religion itself. They create a litany of martyrs, Bruno, Galileo, Roger Bacon, Michael Servetus, and others, and a hagiography of oppressed reformers and visionaries in the scientists' camp. Scientists become recast as prophets, as priests, as recipients of special favor and insight. And so the conflict of science and religion operates as an origin myth of science of origin myth of science, that science develops when it throws off this supposed yoke imposed upon it from religion. It's historically completely wrong. There is no evidence, no way to back that up whatsoever. 
but it's powerful because we all like origin stories. It lays the foundation for science as a religion. So indeed, I found that comparison to the social dynamics of myth and folklore, rather than to the dynamics of rational, historical, and scientific discourse, far better explains the continuing strength and popularity of the conflict model as a whole, and of the false history upon which it rests. So just to drive this point home vis visually, let me show you uh, two holy relics. These are the corporal relics of the Jesuit St. Roberto Bellarmino in the Church of St. Ignatius in Rome. He was the fellow that had the first uh, uh, dispute, not dispute, but uh, conversation with Galileo and told him, watch out, Galileo. Um, and here are the corporal relics of Galileo Galilei, martyr of science. That's his finger there in a reliquary. And you can see down here below, you can see there's a... a um, uh, a devotee staring at uh, Galileo's finger. But you see, it's the same sort of thing. It's a corporal relic in, frankly, a reliquary. But one for uh, a, a Jesuit, uh, a canonized Jesuit, and the other for Galileo. Um, actually, funny story. Um, uh, the finger was collected when Galileo's uh, tomb was opened in the, in the 18th, 19th century. Um, and the Museum of the History of Science in Florence, where this is now, um, had it sort of cleaned up and reset. And there was big, big articles in the paper about this. And what they didn't know is that a rather no, a noble family in Florence came to them and said, oh, we have two of his teeth. Would you like those two? So Galileo's teeth now. All right. Um, unfortunately, just so you, if you're afraid to ask, yeah, it's his middle finger. Um, <laughs> Uh, speaking of finger, now to be fair, one can't point the finger of blame solely at the proponents of atheistic scientism, religious, because religious, excuse me, because religious fundamentalists in all three of the Abrahamic religions and beyond have embraced and perpetuated the idea of an inherent conflict between science and religion equally loudly and ignorantly. In indeed, the stupidities of American pseudo-Christian fundamentalists rival those of the new atheists, and for many of the same political, social, financial, and other self-serving reasons. While the new atheists display so shocking an ignorance of history, philosophy, and theology that one thinks it must be feigned, religious fundamentalists are no better whatsoever. So let's, let's, let's distribute the blame on both sides. How does one wean people off of the conflict model? I think that's going to be difficult as long as it serves a useful function for scientists who are insecure about their social and political position, for fundamentalists who are insecure about their political clout and the size of their congregations, and for atheists who are insecure about their choice of religion. But certainly, getting the history right is the first step. On the one hand, we can enumerate the scientific contributions of religious people. I just did that very quickly for you. That's useful, but I think only to a point. One gets tired of that after a while, because you can say, OK, you're cherry picking your evidence. These are just a few the particular people who were maybe contrary to the general tenor of the times. It's not true, but you could, you could, one could see that argument being made. I think a much deeper way of doing it is to show how general aspects of religion specifically Christianity, although we could do, in fact, the same 
during the Islamic Middle Ages with early Islam, there's no question about that, that have actively fostered scientific discovery and have implanted in Western culture the features necessary for the emergence of a scientific culture. And I'll mention just two general notions that came to my mind. The first of these, <coughs> excuse me, the first of these is the doctrine of the two books, enunciated by several patristic authors, and perhaps most fully by St. Augustine of Hippo in the fifth century. The African doctor argued that God reveals himself to humanity in two different ways. On the one hand, by inspiring human authors to pen the book of scripture, and on the other, by the very act of creating the universe, which Augustine called the book of nature. And if one can learn to read the book of nature by studying it, one discovers more about its creator. Moreover, since the two books have the same author and a divine author, they must necessarily be consistent. Therefore, one can use one to help understand the other. Now, in the modern world, this might sound like a fall into biblical literalism, but that's definitely not how Augustine or his followers for centuries afterwards saw it because Augustine explicitly states that both books require careful interpretation. Bible was written in a way accommodated to its original audience, so while containing truth, that truth is rarely on the surface and has to be teased out. We have to use reason and knowledge uh, to correct our erroneous understandings. And the book of nature is just the same. If you think about modern science, we are constantly having to suppress common sense or sense perception in order to get to the deeper uh, level of thing. Augustine uses the example of if you take a glass of water and you put a stick into it, the stick looks like it's broken because of refraction. But we know that our eyes are giving us the wrong interpretation. We have to take the stick out of the water. We have to understand indices of refraction to understand what our eyes are telling us. Um, critically, he says that the Bible is harder to interpret correctly than the physical universe. Why? Well, because we can explore the world by experiment, if by no other means, in ways that we can't with scripture. His conclusion is crucial to the development of medieval and early modern science, but anathema to the modern fundamentalist. Namely, that the Bible has to be interpreted in the light of demonstrable truths about the physical world and not the other way around. Augustine clearly spells out the dire consequences of failing to do this in a very famous passage, with, which many of you have read elsewhere, I suppose, from his De Genesia Literam, and a passage that's prophetic of many places in our modern time. Quote, Usually, a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and the other elements of this world, about the motion and orbit of the stars, and even their size and relative positions, about the predictable eclipses of the sun and moon, the cycles of the years and the seasons, about the kinds of animals, shrubs, stones, and so forth. And this knowledge he holds to as being certain from reason and experience. Now then, it is a disgraceful and a very dangerous thing for a non-believer to hear a Christian presuming to give the meaning of Holy Scripture talking nonsense on these topics. And we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh it to scorn. So that's from his De Genesia Literum, written at the beginning of the 5th century. Well, Augustine's view is not a brief moment of lucidity, of course. It forms the basis of biblical exegesis for the next thousand years and more 
cited explicitly, relied upon by St. Thomas in the 13th century, and ironically enough, by Galileo himself in the 17th. Indeed, the controversy between Galileo and Bellarmino did involve biblical interpretation, but it was more specifically about the degree to which Galileo had established his claim that the earth was in fact in motion, which would have, as Bellarmino stated clearly, required a reinterpretation of scripture by the competent authorities, not by this guy Galileo. Um, not by this guy Galileo. Uh, ironically, Galileo <laughs> was remarkably correct in his theology, but was famously wrong about the science namely his assertion that tides were proof of the Earth's motion, the specific point about which Urban VIII was skeptical. I can talk more about that uh, if you like in the question session. So if you want to know more about what went on between Galileo's chat with Ur Gal between the chat between Galileo and Urban VIII, I'm happy to tell you. Um, so historians of science now recognize that the doctrine of the two books was a major impetus for the study of the natural world. Um, from Augustine's time well into the modern era and remains for some a continuing goal for his religious study. It means that exploration of the natural world is a kind of religious devotion because it reveals God's creative activity. In fact, one of my favorite examples is Robert Boyle claimed that doing chemical experiments was especially appropriate to do on Sundays because it was a kind of worship. An important corollary of the idea is that the world is worth studying on its own, a value further undergirded by the concept of the incarnation, when God thought his creation good enough to enter into physically. This Christian idea of the worth of the natural world and its radical distinctness from the immaterial, eternal, transcendent God himself expressed itself also in the second point I'd like to mention a bias towards naturalistic explanation of phenomena. That is, only natural causes count as adequate explanations of natural phenomena, arguably the primary methodological principle of modern science. So completely contrary to widespread conceptions of the Middle Ages, medieval thinkers were extraordinarily reluctant to call in divine activity as explanations. They considered it an intellectual cop-out, essentially. As St. Thomas writes, what is more foolish than to say God does something just because he can? The general idea was that at creation, God implanted powers or natures within what he created, and these natures thereafter act on their own as causes. In, in, in Thomas's view, the causes are supported by concurrence, but we can get into that more difficult topic later if you like. But things have their own causes. The causes are within things. Traditional interpreters of Genesis 1, for example, noted that the text reads, let the earth bring forth, uh, excuse me, let the earth bring forth living creatures, not God made living creatures. And so they took that to mean that the power of generating living forms was implanted in matter at the creation and that they would come forth naturally. In short, God shares creative power with creation. And by the 12th century, theologians argued that God's creative activity did no more and no less than create a primordial chaos of the elements out of nothing. These elements then, acting by means of the natural properties which with, with which they had been endowed in the act of their creation, formed the world we see today on their own, including the origin of life and even of human beings. 
And there's perhaps no more dramatic example of the idea of natural properties than in St. Thomas's commentary on Aristotle's physics. It's one of my favorite bits out of the angelic doctor. Picking up on Aristotle's favorite image of how a shipbuilder's knowledge has to be applied to the wood in order to build a ship, the angelic doctor argues that God does not create the world in that kind of way. Instead, he says, it is, quote, as if the knowledge of the shipbuilding art were in the wood itself, such that it would move and assemble itself into a ship. That's an amazing image. It's a sort of Harry Potter kind of image. You see like wood cutting itself into beams and assembling itself into a ship. But that's uh, Thomas's idea of divine creation, that those powers, God's powers, are put into the natural world. And once you think about things that way, so many of the problems that we read about in the newspaper that seem to royal uh, American Christianity just vanish, just instantaneously. Well, of course, Orthodox Christians also believe in the existence of non-natural causation, in short, miracles. But historically speaking, belief in the miraculous actually made study of the natural world, science, more important because one does not want to misidentify an, an event as miraculous through an ignorance of nature. Thus, the 17th century minim friar Marin Mersenne advocated a mechanical, quasi-atomic system of nature, precisely because he believed that such a system could accurately predict all physical phenomena, thus allowing miracles to be more readily identified as such. So methodological naturalism that characterizes modern scientific work was, in fact, a creation of medieval theologians. Well, finally, I want to have, give you one more example just to show you how impossible it is to predict where human inquiry will lead. In the history of science, there are many, many examples where theological speculation led to scientific achievements, once again indicating the absolute inseparability of science and religion historically. So here's one unusual and very peculiar example, but it is not atypical. In the Middle Ages, theologians began seriously mulling over Luke 17.5, where the apostles asked Christ, increase our faith. And, asked, and they began to ask, how is faith increased or decreased? Since faith is a quality, over the next century, the question was expanded to ask about the increase or decrease of all qualities. For example, in a ripening apple, the apple becomes more and more red. Is pale redness destroyed and replaced by a different, stronger redness? Or is new redness added to pre-existing redness? Okay, this sounds very metaphysical and very difficult. It's typical medieval theology. But the questions about the increase and decrease of qualities were important theologically and philosophically. How does faith increase? Some theologians pointed out that a quality has two kinds of quantity its intensity, pale or deep red, and its extension, how much of the surface is red, or for how long a thing is red. In the case of faith, who has more faith? A person with weak faith for 60 years, or one who has strong faith for 20 years? In the 14th century, this amazing character, Nicola Rem, doctor of theology, bishop of Lisieux, um, tried to tackle the problem in a new way. His example was this. Which would you prefer? Would you like to be in moderate pain for two days or 
pain twice as bad for just one day to get it over with? How do you answer that question? Well, here's how Nicola Rem answered it. He started by drawing vertical lines so to represent pain. So here's, here's moderate pain, and there's pain twice as much. And then he wrote, drew lines at right angles to it. Pain, moderate pain, two days. Strong pain, one day. Oops, close the squares, and you find out they have the same area. And so it's an equal amount of pain. There's no difference between the two. You're still suffering the same amount of pain. Okay. Those of you who are mathematicians see where this is headed, I hope. All right. Now, he then branched out to draw various geometrical figures to indicate constant intensity of equality. I went through that one first. There's from one of his books. Okay. Um, to show constant intensity of equality, uniformly increasing or decreasing quality, non-uniformly increasing or decreasing quality. And in each case, the area of the figures he demonstrates gives an accurate measure of the quantity of any quality. Then he imagines the case of motion as a quantity and, and considers what he calls uniformly difform motion. Uniformly difform motion. What we would call constant acceleration. And so he draws this. So here we have these vertical lines are quantity of motion. This line is increasing time. So you can see the motion is uniformly difform. It's not the same. It changes all the time, but changes uniformly. Okay? Going from 0 to 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 to 5 to 6. Okay. And he draws a diagonal across it like that. And he shows that the area of the triangle ADF, 1 half, 6 by 6, is 18. So the quantity of distance traveled is 18. Then he draws a line across it, BE, so where it intersects at the midpoint of the speed. And then you can show that the area of the rectangle ABEF is also 18 which proves that the distance traveled by a uniformly accelerated body is equal to the distance traveled by a body moving at constant speed, which is the mean of the accelerated body's speed, which is known as the mean speed theorem, which is the fundamental theorem of kinematics. But where does it come from? It comes from asking a question about Luke 17.5. Where does this show up again? You'll see that's the same figure just turned on its side. This is the fundamental theorem of kinematics in Galileo's Two New Sciences, which is seen as the foundation of modern classical physics. But where did it really come from? All right. So in conclusion, so, well, just to sum that up, a purely theological inquiry about a biblical verse dealing with faith then dramatically developed gradually into the fundamental axiom of the physics of motion. So, in conclusion, the popular concept of an inherent conflict
between science and religion was not only built and perpetuated upon fabricated history and personal professional insecurities, but also serves to obscure the richness of the history of the real interactions between science and religion. It presents a few cherry-picked and generally exaggerated or misrepresented flashpoints and ignores the variegated, and I think, frankly, vastly more interesting ideas um, that emerged and were elaborated before anyone ever thought of a separation or a conflict between the two. To a thoughtful observer, the continuance of the conflict rhetoric works against both sides, actually, both scientists and religionists, who use it lamentably and culpably enough to bludgeon each other. Scientists who should value rational deliberation and good data should be ashamed to make the crass emotional appeals to outrage and to use fabricated historical facts upon which the conflict model depends. Religionists who should value truth and an unceasing quest for the divine should be ashamed to rely upon falsehoods and to show so little faith in God that they fear that the two books rightly read would ever prove truly contradictory to the detriment rather than to the advancement of religion. To whatever extent the conflict model persists based only upon unfamiliarity with the historical facts rather than upon strategic and self-serving motives, well, I hope I have this evening uh, provided some useful information and reflections for you to consider as you go forward. Thank you.